So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 17th of January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The doll resumes today with another bitter row over housing expected, with Sinn Féin accusing the government of promoting the interests of developers, landlords and investment funds over the interests of struggling house buyers. The government policies in place, Sinn Féin claims, have facilitated and incentivized the displacement of struggling home buyers by investment funds in the housing market. And Sinn Féin says the government is responsible for the continued bulk purchase by investment funds of homes that were aimed at individual buyers. They say 630 such homes were purchased by investment funds between May of 2021 and May of 2023. The private member's motion is uh, to be debated this evening uh, in the Dáil. It's being tabled by the Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, uh, who is um, not on the line, <laughs> I'm told, uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not sure what the problem is there. Uh, we'll try to come back uh, to that item a, a little bit later on in uh, the programme, which is a pity because I did also want to ask Ona O'Brien uh, not just uh, about a surcharge uh, that his party is... Uh, uh, proposing uh, the government put on investment funds at a minimum rate of 17%. But I also wanted to ask him about Dermot Bannon's room to improve and briefings that took place between department uh, officials and Bannon and the producers. Perhaps uh, we'll be able to get Ona O'Brien uh, in uh, the next few minutes. Uh, we'll certainly try to do that. Uh, but we'll turn our attention to some other items now because Bernardo's is expressing concern about uh, the mental health of parents and the impact that poor mental health is having on their children. The chief executive of Bernardo's is Suzanne Connolly, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, The statistics uh, that you're presenting today are pretty shocking to my mind, at least. You uh, believe that one in five parents, 20% of parents are experiencing poor mental health. Is that uh, uh, something new or uh, would that have always been the case? Well, we know that roughly speaking, we'd expect about one in 10 of the population to have a diagnosed mental health condition. But we were really surprised, I suppose, that it was one in five parents who were expressing poor mental health. And this is part of a national representative sample. So it's a very good 
good sense of what the prevalence is. Now, the good news is 34% were saying that they had good mental health mm. and 46% were saying it was OK. Yeah. But yes, one in five is of concern, both for the parents themselves and for the impact it has on their children. OK, and it's a research that was carried out uh, by America. They spoke uh, to 300 parents and 15 one-to-one interviews. Uh, so uh, it's uh, pretty detailed. Uh, and based on the findings, uh, there must be concern for the children of the 20% of parents who are suffering with poor mental health. Tell us a a little bit more. Absolutely. And and just to say, the parents themselves are very aware of the impact that it has on their children because they know they're less patient, they're less emotionally available. The children might be acting out because of that and their behaviour might might disimprove. And some parents have talked about, about being very tired, about not being able to keep up the household routines the extent that they're not able to ensure their children get a good night's sleep, their children are tired at school, which obviously affects children's capacity to perform well at school. They're, and they're also aware that if they're not able to manage their emotions, such as low mood or anxiety, the children are not seeing how to manage that themselves. So that can also be reflected in how children aren't able to manage their emotions. So mm. parents are clear that what they really need is they want some help and support, but they don't know, always know how to access that. Right. Uh, and depression can be an awful thing. Uh, very difficult to motivate yourself uh, when you're very depressed. And that is the way 9% of parents feel. Yeah, exactly. Of course, it's, I mean, any of us, our heart would go out to somebody who's feeling low, depressed. It's very hard to, to get up to do the day-to-day activities, which is why, first of all, we're calling on the government to normalise the fact that it is it is prevalent that some people will feel low mood on occasion and some people will have it more often than that. So we're calling the government to have a campaign to talk about parental mental health because we've been very positive in the country about talking about children's and young people's mental health well-being, but we haven't given sufficient attention to parental mental health and well-being. And we think if we do that, then we can have appropriate conversation and then also ensure that the, the type of support that parents need are available to them, which is such as the services that Bernardo's provides to parents. Right. Uh, when um, those services aren't being availed of and parents are suffering from anxiety and depression or burnout, as the case may be, what impact is that having on their children? Well, see, children, children will... There's a few impacts can have. First of all, it can really affect children's capacity to, to develop and learn because if children require so much attention and positive input from their parents that, that if they don't go, get that, they, they will find themselves suffering sometimes from low self-esteem. They might find it difficult to concentrate at school. They might be very worried about their parents. And say if the parent is, is really in a difficult place, it may be a situation where children don't want to have friends over or indeed the parent isn't able to, to, to get to know other parents to facilitate that, those type of connections. So it'll, it'll have a different impact depending on the age of the child. But we do know that, that, that if parents don't get the help that they, need, that they need and children aren't supported, that it can really have a detrimental effect on a child and a young person, which could last their lifetime. Right, so children are, are learning by example uh, or following the example of uh, their parents. If their parents have low esteem, they may end up with low esteem themselves. Exactly the case. That's exactly the case. Now, the, the, the important thing to bear in mind for any of the parents listening out there is that their help is available, and indeed, Bernardo's provides some really good family support services in the areas that we do have those services. So, so we're able to to work with parents to help them 
establish routines to help them get the support that they need to actually talk to their children and say look mommy and daddy or mommy whichever parent it is sometimes feels low this is why mm. this is not your fault because sometimes children think it's their fault if a parent is in a good mood it's not their fault and this is how you you can be helped to manage your feelings and also what we try and do is ensure the children are involved in positive things and the most important thing is to recognize that that when help is received that progress can be made Mm. Uh, are um, the parents, uh, or, or do you know from this research, if the parents are, are tending to their mental health, are, are, are they seeking help for themselves? Are they going into counselling uh, or, or therapy of some sort? Because I, I would imagine uh, that counselling would help them uh, to explain the situation to their children, if nothing else. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I think that what we find is, is that some parents are able to seek help, but some parents say that they don't know any help locally in their area. And also, that sometimes parents don't realise it's OK to ask for help. They felt it was something they needed to, to deal with on their own. I mean, 36% of the parents who we surveyed said that. Now, some also we would love if they could feel they could ask their friends and their family for a bit of help, because as you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And just to sometimes just norm, normalise the fact that low mood is okay, it's when it's persistent that it's worrying. Or when you're constantly anxious, it's, it's, it's worrying. But, but what's, what's, the other thing we're asking the government to do is that when adults are availing of, of mental health services, that they're asked if they're a parent, and if they are a parent, they're given the opportunity to, to at least be informed of the services that are in, in their locality. So that, and that also will give them the capacity to hopefully reach out and seek some help. Yeah, richer or poor, blacker or white, regardless of ethnicity or religion, children are pretty much similar in terms of their needs to develop and routine and security, very, very important for the future of any child. Uh, And where there's an absence of routines, or security because their parents' behaviour may be unpredictable. Uh, it can prove detrimental to the children. Can you tell us, Suzanne, uh, what uh, Bernardo's can offer in those situations? So, so it, what Bernardo's does is that if we have a parent who comes to us seeking help, we will sit down and talk to that parent, get a sense of their individual circumstances and look to see what it is that they might need. So for some parents, it might be immediate practical support. Maybe the house is a bit of a mess and maybe they're really struggling that way. We'll go out to their home and we'll actually help them practically get the house in order. We'll then look to see if, if there's anything we can do if they're financially struggling, if they're in need of any support in that way in terms of vouchers, we'll provide that. And then we'll say, what else can we help you with? And then what the parent may then say, having seen they were, were available to help them with the immediate issues, they might say, well, actually, I'm struggling getting my child out of school because I feel very low in the morning. So we'll, they will then work with them to think about establishing a routine. And then if, if their child, say, is, is under the age of five, we might see about whether they can access a Bernardus early year service or, or another service in, in, in their community. And we will have a detailed plan working alongside that parent. And then we may need as well to provide some individual work with the child or our children to, again, to say to the children, how are you doing? Mammy or daddy is struggling. This is not your fault. How can we help you? We might think of ways of engaging that, that child in different activities that might be available in the community. So it's a very much a holistic, tailored response to what that particular parent in that particular family needs. And you're calling for support from the government in doing that work, I take it. We absolutely are, because Bernardus isn't everywhere in the country, and we think there needs to be more targeted 
investment in intensive family support. The government has done a good job at getting getting out universal message in relation to parenting, but there needs to be far more tailored support for families in difficult circumstances, such as when parents are struggling with their mental health. Okay, Suzanne, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Suzanne Connolly is uh, the CEO with Bernardo's. Michael Reed on LMFM. So I think we can go to the earlier build. Sinn Fein spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, about uh, this private member's motion that I told you about a little bit earlier on, which would see a stamp duty surcharge of at least seventeen percent on investment funds and will once again spark a debate on housing in this country in the Dáil when it resumes after the Christmas holidays this afternoon. The debate will take place this evening. Ono Bryn is on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Before we talk about your motion and what that might mean if adopted, maybe you could tell us something about the concerns that you have about a briefing that took place between the housing department officials, uh, Dermot Bannon and uh, the producers of Room to Improve. This was reported on in the Sunday Independent uh, where they say that uh, the officials uh, gave the programme makers briefings on vacant home grants and you've a number of questions about what happened there, I think. Yeah, Michael, and first of all, Happy New Year to you, and apologies for the delay. I was caught in a morning meeting about housing delivery with some utility companies. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say at this stage I have concerns. Um, the, the story is that back in 2022, uh, um, a, a person who works with Dermot Bannon on the Room to Improve programme uh, requested and received a briefing from Department of Housing officials on the vacant home refurbishment grant. So the idea was that they would use the Room to Improve show to uh, highlight uh, the use, utility of the grant. Uh, I don't have a problem in principle uh, with any minister using RT or RT programmes to promote grants, particularly grants that would assist people uh, in bringing vacant and derelict homes back into use. But there's a particular issue which is around about the same time the grant level changed. Again, I'm not saying that there's an issue with that. But what I would like to know is one, uh, if there's a minute of the meeting uh, between uh, the person from the programme and the officials from the department, I think that should be published. Uh, and two, if there's any other surrounding documentation, particularly into that relation, that issue as to whether or not there was any discussion of the level of grant, I think that should be also published. It really just isn't in the issue of transparency um, and full disclosure. So I'm not saying there's a problem per se, but I would like to see that additional information and I've requested it from the Department via Freedom of Information. Because that briefing, that meeting, if you like, took place two months before the scheme was expanded. Uh, and I guess one of the questions is if uh, the Minister and his uh, department were briefing uh, RTE or the programme makers in advance of uh, the Oireachtas and the public. Exactly. And again, look, I, I don't want to overstate this. Um, if there is a government scheme that helps people uh, 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 renovate uh, and bring back into use vacant and vacant or direct homes, clearly they should be looking to promote it and use every means possible. There are very, very many scheme problems with the schemes. A large number of people who are currently going through the process contact me from all over the country who are saying that the, scheme, it's, the, the grant scheme is too slow, that the money is paid in arrears uh, rather than installed payments. 
Many local authorities don't even have payment systems up and running, which is means people who've got the grant undertaken the work themselves from their own resources or from additional borrowing haven't been able to recoup the money. So the number of actual drawdowns has been very, very low. The number of applications has been very significant. There's huge interest in this. And I've long advocated for measures to uh, uh, assist people and crucially to assist our local authorities bring more vacant and derelict homes back into use. But like I say, uh, given that, I suppose, high-profile nature of this, uh, I think if there is any records or, or, or minutes, uh, I think if they were put in the public domain, that would be in everybody's best interest, not least the minister and the programme makers themselves. OK. Uh, you were uh, later today uh, accused uh, the government of doing something other than helping ordinary people uh, to purchase properties or, or renovate them, as uh, the case may be. And indeed, you're saying that policies... Uh, that uh, the government have implemented have facilitated the displacement of fund uh, of uh, struggling home buyers by investment funds in the housing markets. Uh, the result of this, uh, you say, is 630 homes purchased by investment funds uh, between May of 2021 and March of 23 over that uh, two-year period. As a result of that, you're looking for this stamp duty surcharge. Yes, back in 2021, uh, you may remember, there was quite a controversy around a residential development um, uh, called Mullen Park in County Kildare, where a significant number of homes were put on the market for buyers. Some buyers actually expressed an interest and paid deposits, but then the seller decided to sell them in block to a fund. And those same homes were then going to be rented at very, very high prices uh, uh, to working families. Uh, at the time, we said that that was wrong and government should increase stamp duty uh, to disincentivise that kind of practice. Government agreed with us, and at that stage, they increased stamp duty to 10%, uh, saying that that would sort out the problem. We told them at that point it wouldn't. We said it needed to be at least 17%. Uh, and then recently, of course, there was a new story uh, about a significant number of residential units in Belcamp Manor in North County Dublin, uh, where the same uh, business homes that got planning permission to be residential homes for people to buy and live in, uh, that could have either been sold directly to owner-occupiers or could have been sold to the local authority as an affordable housing scheme, again, for people to buy, were sold to a fund. Uh, and not only sold to a fund, taking those homes away from owner-occupiers, but we were told they were then going to be rented out at over €3,000 a month mm. uh, for a standard residential home in the suburbs. Uh, so, as we said back in 2021, 10% stamp duty for both purchases of these properties by institutional investors is not enough. It needs to be at least 17%. And what's significant about tonight's debate is Government actually say they want to achieve the same objective, yeah. but the way in which they've gone about it hasn't worked. So I see no reason why they shouldn't support us uh, and increasing the stamp duty because they say they want to stamp this out. They haven't done it so far, uh, and therefore we think they should support our motion. But that uh, monthly rental of €3,000 uh, is exceptionally high. Is that not exceptionally high because of the 10%? Surcharge, uh, and if you increase that to seventeen percent, uh, could you be looking at a situation where that goes from three thousand a month to three and a half thousand a month? So, first of all, what we're seeing in the rental market here in Dublin, and not just in this city centre where rents are highest, but we're seeing uh, rents in standard private rental properties move from two and a half thousand up to three thousand, three thousand plus, and that's just an unacceptable situation. The point here is there's a certain tipping point. Uh, in stamp duty, after which no longer makes financial sense for the institutional investors to make that investment. So again, back in 2021, when government raised it to 10%, we said that wasn't high enough to meet that tipping point. 
and all it would do is result in funds buying and recouping uh, um, the additional stamp duty charge and rent. Our estimation and the advice we've got is 17% would be the tipping point. Now, if we're wrong and if somebody wants to make the case for a higher mm. one, we listen to that. And it, does that mean that, that investment funds, if you go to 17%, does that mean that you believe investment funds would stop buying up property? Uh, and exactly that, the well, then who would buy it? Uh, and if if nobody was buying it uh, on the scale that investment funds purchase property, uh, where would there be for people to rent? So, first of all, these aren't rental properties. These are properties that got planning permission uh, in the first instance uh, for for people to buy the homes and live in them. It's a it's a residential estate in that sense. It's not a built-to-rent apartment development or a, a, a social... But you've or, just or given two examples of where people ha- have moved in and rented those properties. I have, but my point is when the planning permission was granted and when the planning application was made, and the developer in this instance on, is on the public record, these were homes he wanted to sell. The problem is, at the moment, because these institutional investors pay no tax on the rent roll and no capital gains, they can push up and outbid any other category of purchaser, whether that's individual owner-occupiers or, for example, the state who want to acquire them for an affordable housing scheme. So it's not just that they're buying them, but in buying them, they're pushing up the prices, but also they're charging extortionate rent. And we're we're not against private sector developers and funders building good quality stock for the rental market. That's not the issue. These were homes that were always intended for people to buy uh, and to live in as permanent family homes. But there are people living in them, renting them on a monthly basis. Well, they, they haven't been rented out yet. But can I say to you, the idea that a working family should be asked to pay €3,000 a month to live in a standard uh, uh, two- or three-bedroom family home in the suburbs. This isn't even in Dorky or Balls Bridge or Fox Rock. Mm. This isn't, I don't think, against the suburbs. I live it's there and a, I represent them. It's outrageous, them. yeah. Mm. Um, and therefore, this is not a good thing for our housing system. Uh, the straight answer is, first of all, if the fund hadn't have bought them, uh, owner-occupiers could have bought them at possibly a lower price. And if they couldn't, and the developer is saying he didn't think they could, the state could have bought them. And just like in my own constituency and others, they could have used them as affordable homes for purchase or for rent at lower prices uh, uh, than Mm. what would have been the case. So our preference is these would have been for people to live in. People would have been able to buy them, whether directly from the developer or through an affordable housing scheme. The problem is because the government's uh, 10% stamp duty increase in 2021 didn't work and we told them it wouldn't work, these types of purchases, unfortunately, have continued. Uh, and if anybody thinks it's OK for a fund to outbid everybody else in the market and then charge extortionate rent, and then any number of years down the line, flip the property to some other fund, uh, make a huge gain and not pay any capital uh, gains tax, uh, if anybody thinks that's good for a housing system, it's not. Why are young people emigrating with good uh, employment prospects and good education? Because they can't get affordable homes. Uh, why are people in their 50s and 60s living in the private rental sector well beyond they should? Because they can't get affordable homes to rent. Uh, and uh, anything that pushes up house prices and results in extortionate rents, particularly by funds who pay no tax in this jurisdiction, is bad and should be stopped. And that's why we have uh, the motion this evening. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. That's Ono Brain, Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Last year, local enterprise offices around uh, the country created or at least contributed to to the creation of 6,640 jobs. It's the highest 
number of jobs since uh, local enterprise offices were established going back to 2014. We can speak to the Minister with the responsibility for Employment Affairs, Neil Richmond now, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Minister. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. I guess this is part of Ireland's success story when it comes to employment, a country that is very close to full employment at this stage. Yeah, statistically, Mike, we are effectively at full employment and there's lots of different things going into that. Indeed, some people were saying we're now at the challenge because labour shortages are a real uh, issue for a lot of companies, but this is just good news. You know, these are our local businesses who are working, indigenous businesses in a range of sectors across the country, 6,640 new jobs that didn't exist last year. 82% of those jobs are created outside Dublin. And just for your own point of view, 216 of those were in Meath and 154 of them were in County Louth. So we're seeing growth in every single county across the country and it feeds into the wider very clear issue that our economy is doing well despite global challenges and besides uh, concerns. This is the 10th year in succession we've seen growth rates since 2014 and the local enterprise offices are so important. They're embedded in every county across the country working hand in hand with the local authorities. Tell us a little bit, if you would, Minister, about how Leos, as they're called, can help small businesses. What is it that local enterprise offices do to help firms create jobs? Well, every single local enterprise office has a team of dedicated staff, up to a dozen people in each local authority. And they're the first stop. They're the first stop for someone who has thinking about having a business. They're thinking about, you know, I'd like to go out on my own. I'd like to set up my business. I have a dream for a product or an idea or an invention. It's that first phone call, that first email into the local enterprise office to sit up a me- set up a meeting with a business advisor. That can be the start. Now, for more established people who maybe have already set up their business, but it's small and they'd like to improve or they're facing very real challenges, the Leos offer a range of different courses on how to make your business more uh, agile, more lean, how it can deal with the rising challenges of, a, of climate change and indeed digitization. But also, Leos have quite a number of financial support. They can provide grant aid in a lot of different areas. So there's the €5,000 trading online voucher where a business who wants to develop a website or an online presence to allow them market their business better, increase sales, um, whatever it may be, they can get that grant from the local enterprise office to get them started, to get that website built or indeed that payment system or online marketing campaign. So it's really, really important, not just for people who want to set up a business, but grow a business. And one of the things that we did last year is we changed the remit of local enterprise offices. Previously, they only dealt with businesses with up to 10 employees. Now we stretch that up to up to 50 employees. That'll ensure that these businesses not only get started, but can grow, grow and be more sustainable and long-term in their communities. What's the cost of the Exchequer? The cost of the Exchequer is just over €150 million we put into local enterprises every year. This year we've increased it by €9 million and the the return is very clear, not just in the in the level of job creation, but it's the sustainable um, business in the in the environment. Because you know, every one of those 154 jobs in Laos support three other different jobs. So that's why it's so important. It's it's an investment that delivers a very clear and easy return. And particularly, it's so regionally focused. It's every single county has growth, every single county, and particularly growth, as I said, outside Dublin. Yeah, as you said, hiring uh, can be very difficult and retaining staff can be very difficult. Uh, Is there support uh, 
uh, in training people for the jobs uh, that uh, will be created? There is directly through local enterprise offices and actually earlier in the week, myself and Simon Harris launched 24 new micro-qualifications. So the local enterprise offices um, do half the courses, but a lot of it is also working with the enterprise, uh, or sorry, the Education and Training Board, Solus other groups. So these are new qualifications aimed at people who are in work. They're short, sharp, six to eight week programs that can be done on a hybrid or remote basis while you're still working. To, and they're, de- they're specifically aimed at how you can increase the capabilities of employees. It's good for the employer. It's good for the employees. It's making sure that staff continue to grow, that they want to stay with the business, that they don't outgrow the business. But we also provide support on how best to run recruitment um, as well as to retain staff. Does uh, stories like this call into question why people are long-term unemployed, do you think, Minister? I think we have to look at long-term unemployed, you know, quite frankly. And this is something that I've done a lot of work over the last six to 12 months. We have made a lot of effort in bringing down, as I said, the amount of people who are on uh, job seekers. Last year, 75% of those returning to work from job seekers were actually women. So a lot of these are people who, for societal reasons, simply couldn't get access to the workplace. And that's why local enterprise offices are so important, because they're often working with businesses that can afford to be more uh, flexible. And I, I just think of individual businesses, and this is an anecdotal, but a lot of these businesses were were dreamt up, for want of a better word, during the pandemic when people were at home and people had a lot more time and they got started in maybe the, the garage or the shed or the back bedroom or taking over the kitchen. We do have... Um, effective full employment. A lot of the people who are long-term employed, some of them simply won't work. Um, They don't qualify for disability, they don't qualify for carers, but they're not in a position to work. But we are running more and more courses, uh, particularly in working with the Intrio offices for those people who want to get back to work, maybe if it's even just 20 hours a week. We're also working at providing support through the local enterprise office. Mm. We're just doing a pilot scheme at the moment in Kildare, not too far away, in terms of making uh, the workplace and providing sports for employers to make the workplace more accessible for um, employees with disabilities. It's one thing making your shop or your business more accessible for customers who may have disabilities, but it's also important. There's a great scheme being run by the National uh, Council of the Blind in Ireland for people with visual impairments to do a retail apprenticeship in their NCBI shops around the country. This is the sort of effort, this is the time that we need to make that real effort. These are these will be changes that will be long-term changes that will make the workplace more accessible and will allow more people who've been long-term unemployed or locked out of the workplace have a better chance to contribute to the labour market. Yeah, and there will always be people who uh, won't work or, or can't work, uh, people with mental health problems uh, and so on. But uh, at full employment, uh, we've uh, 4.9% of uh, the population who remain unemployed. Undoubtedly, some of uh, them are in between jobs uh, and that equates, I think, to about 150,000 people. And you'd have to ask yourself um, how many of those just simply won't work, uh, regardless of the supports that are in place, uh, family supports uh, and so on, to make it possible, to make work pay. Uh, there are people who seem to find ways of gaming the system, are there not? There's always anecdotal evidence of that. And indeed, there was quite a number of um, fines handed out last year for people who maybe we're, we're ca- carrying out welfare fraud, but I think this notion that there is a benefits culture here, and we, we, we see it in the UK, we saw this, we see the sensational uh, headlines in certain newspapers, and we see indeed the television shows about people who just won't work. 
there's very few people like that in this country in the round. There are a lot of people who, who can't work for lots of different um, social, uh, economic and, and, and familial re- reasons. And that's where we as, as policymakers, as legislators, have to make the change. But what we do consistently want, and what we've always put to the forefront in Senegal, is that we want to make work pay. That's why we increased uh, the minimum wage uh, based uh, on the 1st of January. It's why we've reduced the income tax burden by close to €1,000 for an individual worker. It should always be better off working than not working. But we always do have to provide support to who simply cannot work. And we're we're looking in this country that we have so many people at work. We actually have a record number of people, just over 2.65 million people. More people are working now than ever before in the history of the state, which is good news. It can, we can see it because it's given us record tax take that we are ploughing into investment, into our infrastructure, into our society, into our services. Okay, Minister, uh, we leave there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Minister Neil Richmond, uh, Minister of State at uh, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment with Special Responsibility for Employment Affairs. Now, if you'd like to comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658 and you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Indeed, a message uh, that uh, came to me overnight uh, through Facebook uh, from uh, Oshin McCann uh, about uh, the ongoing story with Louth County Council. And Oshin says, if we take Louth County Council, look at it uh, as a company, the directors should act on behalf of the shareholders, i.e. the taxpayer. And in this case, the directors are the councillors from planning to economic development. Louth lags behind where it should be Oshin says, and the councillors, if they are listening to the shareholders, uh, they should be asked if they're happy with the executive team. And I would guess, Oshin says, the answer would be no. You're not going to get an overall correct view. However, everybody is not wrong. Even talk to the architect that put in planning applications to Louth County Council, and most of them have an issue with the process. And the question for the directors or the councillors is, what are they going to do about it? And if a senior person in such important roles as a councillor not meeting expectations or their job spec, what in their view should be done as elections are upcoming. Uh, we'll, we'll be making some of those points, Oshin, to the Cahirlock in the next hour of the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if uh, you've seen the video on uh, the internet of Colette Fitzpatrick. You know Colette Fitzpatrick uh, from Virgin Media News, fine presenter. There she is talking away uh, about investment funds and asks uh, the Taoiseach to endorse this. Uh, Leo Vratker then is seen on the screen saying, I want to ensure you that we wanted to test the app and I can vouch for the viability of uh, this app uh, but it's not the Taoiseach who's speaking and it's not Colette Fitzpatrick who's speaking unless you look very closely you may think it is although the accents may be a little bit questionable but it's all part of a scam part of what has now become a trend of elaborate scams with
with deep fake videos and artificial intelligence at play. James Lawless is a, a Fianna Fáil TD and is a party spokesperson on digital policy. He joins us now. And a very good morning to you, James Lawless. Thanks for joining us on in the programme this morning. When you see how sophisticated some of these scams are, it's little wonder that people fall for them. Yeah, good morning, Mike, and good morning to your listeners. And look, at I've seen these ads, and I've noticed over the last, I suppose, number of months that the uh, frequency of these ads has multiplied on social media, particularly. Um, there's some suggestion, actually, that on Twitter, that um, because Elon Musk has lost a lot of the mainstream advertisers, that some of the fringe advertising, uh, some of which may even be illegal, uh, is now kind of filling up that, that void. So that's maybe one reason we're seeing a lot more of this, but... Um, I suppose the kind of thing we're seeing, the, the Leo Radker one, Kalef Fitzpatrick, Miha Martin was in another one. Um, I've seen the Late Late Show host uh, allegedly interviewing all kinds mm. of celebrities who were all allegedly endorsing. I think Alistair Campbell's mentioned another one. Okay. Um, all sorts of products and financial uh, scams. And Doyle. And Doyle was in, that's yep. right, was, was another one. I mean, I suppose the first reaction I suppose I have just as a, as a human being is who would fall for this? Um, because to me, it's so preposterous that and really, it's very far-fetched because some of these scams involve a kind of narrative where the guest starts to say something and then the, there's a call from the central bank or, or the government or somebody to say, oh, no, hush that, get them off the air immediately. This is a big scandal. And really, it's quite a preposterous narrative. And, and, and so the first reaction is, who would actually believe that? But I'm reminded of, and I suppose the difficulty with technology and the Internet is it always advances, which in most ways is good. But good and bad actors always emerged to use and misuse it uh, in different ways. Uh, and maybe 20 years ago, when email was first becoming f- widely used and, and the web was developing, there used to be the old Nigerian prince uh, email would come into your inbox. And I'm sure a lot of people remember getting an email from some long-lost cousin you know, in, in the Far East. Uh, there was a common one, a Nigerian prince is escaping from uh, oppression and wants to deposit 10 million in your bank account. Uh, and you can keep a million for the privilege once you get safe to the far side. All you have to do is give them all your personal details and all your data and all your bank um, information. So I suppose in one way, it's, an, it's a development of what's always been a theme that people will use technology for their own uses, be that good or bad. And as legislators, we have to manage that and try to be proactive about it and try to uh, put a lid on it. One of the things that can be done with this particular scam, scam is to look at a warning label on all AI-generated content, um, and that's something that's been looked at in, under the AI Act at the moment. So if an if a item appears that's a deep fake or an AI item that would have a label attached to it, mm. then that may be one way to help with this. Okay. Um, that's if uh, people complied. Well, exactly. So I suppose there's always going to be illegal actors. So, so the likes of a warning label might be useful for... You know, somebody's creating a, a, a legitimate ad, but it, there's, there's fake content, but maybe it's for marketing purposes or they're allowed to do it. Um, the likes of this, obviously, is completely a hoax. It, you know, it's, it's misappropriating people's good name. I mean, yeah. it's violating all kinds of laws. So there has to be, and it's difficult. And we saw recently in the courts, the Tornish to Michael Martin actually took a case himself, to, mm-hmm. I think, to Google, to get Google to reveal the names of the people running these, these advertisements. And I think, again, like we've seen many times over the years on uh, social media, the big platforms have to step up. The Googles, the Twitters, the, the Facebooks, um, the YouTubes of this world, they need to, if they're going to be running these ads or, or allowing this content to be hosted, I mean, I'll put it this way, Mike, if your show LMFM was running an ad in every interval that had a fake voice of a well-known uh, public figure, 
it wouldn't be too long before your station was getting calls probably from solicitors and all kinds of people and rightly so and I know you wouldn't do it in the first place because you're a very legitimate upstanding organisation but why shouldn't those same rules then apply to the online space because it seems that there's defences thrown out there well we're nothing to do with us all we have is a computer system we don't really know what's on yeah. the far side of it mm. Uh, and we can turn a blind eye. So that has to change, and, and that is changing with, with the um, online um, regulator and, and with the AI act coming through. But look, at it, it's a fascinating space. There's lots of positives. It can be, it can be used for a speed of time in many... Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Many workplaces and indeed in government departments, there is an AI strategy being adopted yep. by the government. Uh, there's an AI ambassador appointed, um, but it has to be. You know, we have to be wise to the fact that people use it for their own ends, which may not be so positive um, as well. I don't know if we are wise enough, though. Are we? Uh, I mean, to beat the technology, the technology is amazing, and uh, I think that eventually we are going to be in a situation where people will be presenting radio programs. Uh, but they won't be people, they'll be computers, uh, but the technology will be such that you won't notice the difference. Maybe you would now, uh, but in time. uh, I mean, Elon Musk was talking uh, about uh, the day coming where people won't have to work uh, because artificial intelligence will be able to do everything for us. Yeah, so look at, I suppose, in some ways we'd all love to believe that. We could all spend our days in our gardens or, 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 or I don't know, playing football or, or, or watching the races or whatever is our thing. But um, that's been said for a long, long time. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that um, when I started working, there was uh, the Windows systems are coming out and the Office systems. It was, it was the early days of Microsoft Windows, Microsoft Office, around mm. the, the early 90s, late 90s. And people thought this is amazing. Excel and Word were, were being made available. You wouldn't have to have the old calculator anymore on the desk. Um, I think 20, 30 years before that, going back to maybe the, the 70s or, or 60s even, people are talking about the computer would mean nobody has to work anymore. Uh, and the kind of the talking heads of that generation worried about how people would spend all this huge amount of free time they're going to have. Um, but what's actually happened is we're busier than ever. And actual fact, technology, I mean, I think, I think I'm not unusual uh, in the sense that from the moment I get up, from the moment I go to sleep, my phone is pinging WhatsApps, emails, text messages. You know, phone calls are almost the last thing the phone does anymore. You know, it's everything else that it does. But that's work. That's work being brought home. And OK, for me as a TD, it's somewhat unusual. But in every job, I think that's becoming a thing. And that's not really a good thing because there are lines between work and home are being blurred. So far from actually giving us extra leisure time and making our lives easier, technology is just, the work has grown to create the space available. Mm. Um, and that's not an automatically good thing. I personally actually have, have a view, uh, even though I'm a technology spokesperson, and even though I'm very, I'd like to think across technology, I think there's a time to switch it off. 
and I think maybe that Sunday afternoon with your family, or, or maybe it's a bit of quiet time in the garden, or, you know, or going for a walk. I, I think this time is the phone should be left at home, quite frankly, and the off button should be used more often as well. Yeah, but it is fantastic technology on the other hand, isn't it? I mean, there's pros and cons to everything, and there certainly are a, a, a lot of pros when it comes to artificial intelligence. Ask it to write a, a thesis for you. But having said that, there's concerns then uh, about students using it uh, and uh, the way that they use it. And uh, I suppose uh, this is the sort of thing that can shape people's lives going into the future and how uh, the use of artificial intelligence can be combated so that people can be properly tested is one of the biggest challenges in the short term. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the point about the thesis, I think, is a very good example. And I've experimented with like the ChatGPT over the last year or two, putting in questions, you know, asking it to, to throw out speeches just as, as a kind of experiment to see what it came out of it. My own view, and certainly at the moment, is I find the content generated quite clunky. Um, if, for example, I asked it to write a speech to me, uh, and I don't know once or twice just to see what it would come out with, it's not a speech I'd be comfortable using. Uh, an overuse of adjectives and sort of flowery language that doesn't actually sound natural. And it reminds me of, and no offence to, to youngsters, and I've, I've a couple of kids myself going to school mm-hmm. in college, but a junior cert student, maybe being asked to write an essay, might have used a certain style and perhaps overly flowery prose that, that a real-life person, maybe speaking you know, at a business meeting or political event, would find a little bit... Uh, verbose, um, and I think that's something that's the computer learning. But look, these things happen quickly, yeah. and, and these things will progress uh, to the next stage. But though, undoubtedly, I mean, I, I'm still on an almost daily basis amazed by the things I'm shown that it can do. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, if you're working in the visual arts or, or graphic design or engineering or architecture, is pouring over a drawing for hours upon hours upon hours. You can actually just tell the computer now what you want and get it to generate everything, including the measurements. Mm. Uh, and that's, inc- that's extraordinary. And that will save the human race a lot of time and effort. Yeah, and no doubt humans will tailor the technology to address this kind of shortfalls that you're talking about. But even with those shortfalls and the flowery language or language that you wouldn't otherwise use, uh, what you will find in that speech that you've had it right for you Uh, would be a lot of information, factual information, information that is factually correct. But where is that information coming from? Uh, And that leads to another conversation, doesn't it? And an interesting case, I think, uh, that the New York Times is taking because it's feeding off news sources like that and it's questioning if it's a breach of copyright. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing I can get wrong is... And there's a well-known, I won't mention the name because I don't want to uh, cause any more damage to the individual, but there's a, a case being taken in the High Court at the moment in Ireland where a well-known uh, public figure, um, an, a, an AI article was written for an online news website. It alleged somebody had been convicted of a particular crime. It said that person was working in a particular sector. And then it had a photograph of somebody also working in that sector running along with the article. Yeah. Now, any news desk, any editor in the country, be it, be it you know, at any level, would have spotted immediately and pulled that story and not even let it go up because yeah. it said that is not the same person. But the AI, not unreasonably, because it was applying an algorithm, thought this person works in that sector, this is an article about that sector, you know, this is probably a good image to, to run with it. And the computer said yes. And all of a sudden, that person, you know, and that person's now suing, I think, quite rightly, because saying, oh, my God, that's nothing to do with me. You know, and now anyone casually browsing that site would have thought that was him. Mm. And it's not. So that's an example of it gone wrong. The other thing in terms of where it gets its content from, there's a few different models. So there's a deep learning model and there's an actual language model. And effectively, when they're turned on and they're connected to the web, they can scour the web all day, every day, pulling in data, okay, that they find online. 
The other alternative is the kind of closed model, which means they're given a database at the start and that never grows. And that kind of, it is what it is when, you know, it could be the full books of Shakespeare, it could be the periodic table, you know, and a million other things. But it's a kind of a closed book once it gets going. The reason I have it closed is there's a danger to having it plugged onto the internet all the time. Not least that the computer could run amok and start connecting to systems and becoming intelligent enough to turn systems on and off. We can all see a power plant being experimented with or a radar missile system or something. These are the worst case scenarios. But even with that going that apocalyptic, a lot of news sites, even ones written by humans, are not always accurate. They're not always correct. Um, you know, we go to the likes of Wikipedia and Google, and they're very helpful. But I would always go back to my source and just double check. If I get a statistic or a figure from from online, I'd usually just check a few sources. I'll double check and fact check and, and see does it sound right based on my own my own experience and learning, um, before I might you know quote it too often. The computer won't have that, and the computer may take as gospel what's fed into it. Um, so that's another issue with, you know, are the things that's telling us in that speech you might ask it to write or that thesis you might ask it to write, mm-hmm. are those sources... And actually there was a, 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 an issue last year when the thesis was produced that had five citations, and when the lecturer smelled a rat and was correcting the homework and drilled into the citations, uh, they didn't exist. There were articles that were linked to that actually, did, I think the system had made them up. Well, the student didn't copish, but, but the lecturer, you know, did a bit of drilling <laughs> yeah. and did. So, look, there's a long way to go on this stuff yet, mm, and um, it's very error-prone too. Yeah, but I, I tell you one thing, uh, if you uh, look at tomorrow's world, uh, people are old enough uh, to remember tomorrow's world on the television. Yeah. If you look at some of uh, the old stuff uh, that you'll find online, you'll see that they were predicting all of this back in the 60s uh, and yeah. into the 70s for that matter. But it is the world that we're living in today uh, and there are reasons to be cautious uh, when you're navigating uh, things on uh, the internet and so forth. James, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. James Lawless, Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare North is uh, the Fianna Fáil spokesperson on digital policy. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. For weeks on end now, we've been asking questions about how Louth County Council is carrying out its duties. It's become almost tiring at this stage. But just to recap, we've been asking, how is it that the Chief Executive of Louth County Council unilaterally took it upon herself to breach the Local Government Act and withdraw a motion that should have been tabled uh, to be debated by members, the elected members of uh, the local authority in May. Uh, How in doing that, uh, the chief executive and her executives disregarded advice given to them by a solicitor that at a minimum they should have at least consulted uh, with uh, the Cahirlach, who at the time was Conor Keelan. Then there's the question of uh, the Freedom of Information Act, which you're probably familiar with, without me going into all of the details of uh, the two records, the five records, and then how 892 records that never existed suddenly turned up. Uh, and then there's the continued breach of that act, because not all records are being discovered, because the officials, despite being directed by the Information Commissioner to carry out a, a 
proper search, who also made reference to their phones, didn't uh, discover records on their phones. Anyway, as you heard earlier in the week, all of this was discussed at uh, the monthly meeting of the local authority. But it is pretty clear at this stage that the chief executive of Louth County Council, Joan Martin, failed to address any of these issues. The chief executive of Louth County Council has uh, declined, well, has actually um, not responded uh, to requests from uh, this programme to address those issues either in writing or personally by speaking to us here and indeed to you, the people that she is employed to serve. The Cahirlock of Louth County Council is Paula Butterly, who's a Fine Gael councillor and with us in the studio this morning. Uh, you're 100% satisfied, uh, I, as I understand it, uh, that the council has acted uh, appropriately uh, and you're not looking for any explanations. I think um, I've listened uh, very carefully over the last couple of weeks to the information provided by you. I've spoken to the members of Louth County Council. I've also looked at the looked at the information that has been available to me and I've listened very carefully to both the chief executive and the officials. Um, as you know, on Monday we had a robust debate in the chamber, which lasted well over an hour in regards to this very issue. And the chief executive has explained to us that, you know, going not to rehash all the numbers mm. in regards to the searches and the terms mm. that at this stage in any given year, on uh, they actually deal with in and around 100 freedom of information requests. Uh, any given month, that's five or six that are dealt with and responded to. There's a huge amount of work and resources that go into it. Uh, in regards to the information given to us, I believe that the chief executive and her officials did deal with the matter um, well, I think appropriately. What, I, I, I think what they said was that they breached the act uh, and then gave excuses for why they did that. I think uh, the findings of the information commissioner was that the, could they have done a better job in the first place? Most likely and absolutely possibly because she directed them mm. to do a fresh search and that fresh search has now is now undergoing and I believe that they have discovered more documents and there's still the process of those documents to be okay. investigated. So, yeah, well, okay. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's an accurate interpretation of the judgment from the Information Commissioner. Uh, but uh, if we go back to the breach of uh, the Local Government Act I in May, uh, that wasn't addressed at all. Are, 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 are you happy about that? In what way, Michael? Sorry. Uh, that uh, the Local Government Act was breached in May uh, by the Chief Executive taking it upon herself to unilaterally disallow a motion from the agenda, uh, which uh, is beyond her remit uh, because that's a reserve function of the councillors. My understanding, because naturally, as you said in the opening, was that at the Cahirlick at the time was indeed Councillor Keelan. Mm. It was brought up at a CPG meeting of which the councillors, the vast majority of councillors weren't present at that or privy to the discussions mm. in that. Um, I believe that the chief executive is entitled to get legal advice in order to inform herself as to how to advise best. Maybe so, but she doesn't the, have the right to disallow a motion. As I said, you know, um, all of this came to light 
But I thought you'd informed yourself. I had informed myself, but in regards to the Freedom of Information... But I've given you a lot of information. No, I'm not talking about the Freedom of Information. I'm talking about the Local Government Act. Uh, I mean, I sent you and all of the other councillors on uh, an email from a spokesperson on behalf of the Minister for Local Government uh, uh, because we queried this. Uh, And uh, in that uh, response, on behalf of the government, the spokesperson says Section 74 of the Local Government Act 2001, as amended, provides that local authorities may confer civic honour on a a distinguished person. Uh, And that's in relation to the motion which was to rescind uh, the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey. That's the civic honour. So the councillors have that as a reserve function. It, It also states under the Act that a decision of a local authority to confer civic honour on a person is a reserve function. In other words, these matters are entirely a decision of the elected council. The minister and his department have no role or function here. Uh, The chief executive has not got the authority to disallow a motion. It's the role of the councillors and only the councillors. The chief executive is there to advise and assist. If the chief executive comes to you as a a body of councillors and says, I think there's problems here, uh, it would be remiss of you as councillors not to heed that advice, but it's up to you to decide whether to disallow or allow the motion, not the chief executive. But in this case, the chief executive did exactly that. That was a breach of the legislation. Do you accept that? I accept the fact that on on when the matter came toward, to all the members, that the motion was then tabled for the following month and dealt with. Why? In what way? Why, why was it? Why, why? Why? Why was it back on the agenda? Is that what you mean? No, not why it was back on the agenda. In the fact that when it came before the members, that the members actually accepted the motion, discussed the motion, and voted on the motion. In so May, the motion in itself was dealt. Not with, in May, but not in May, but because in July. Because the chief, yeah. But so, 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 why was it not debated in May? I don't know. Why no, it and wasn't. that's that's what a lot of people. That's what victims of child sexual abuse would like to know. Do you understand that? They want to know why this motion was pulled. I can't speak to that at the moment, uh, Michael, because... Right, now there's a problem. As the chairperson of Louth County Council, we have a real problem. You can't speak to why the chief executive breached the legislation, the Local Government Act of all acts, and you're... 100% satisfied, you've told us. You are 100% in support of the chief executive in acting that way. But you can't explain why, because it hasn't been explained to you. And in fact, uh, you haven't asked why. Why have you not asked why? Michael, I think at this stage, the motion back in April was dealt with in July. We're still here now in the month of January. No, you're, you're, you're not hearing the point here. Victims of I, child sexual abuse want to know why the chief executive pulled the motion. I can understand why you're, you're insisting on this point. However, it's a very I, important point. I believe that the motion has been dealt with. No. The motion has been dealt with. The issues around freedom of no. information have been dealt with. We're now in the month of January. The workload if that the, the councillors have the way, to face. By the way, if the motion had been dealt with, the freedom of Drogheda would have been rescinded from Brother Edmund Garvey and the website would reflect that. It doesn't. And there is another problem, which maybe we'll deal with in a, a moment. But as 
the Cahirlach of Louth County Council, you don't want to know why the chief executive breached the Local Government Act. That's what you're telling me. No, what I'm saying, it's not that I don't want to know. I know, I understand that the chief executive of the council has the right to inform herself and to receive legal opinion in order to inform the councillors. Nobody ever said otherwise. Okay. And at that point... She didn't inform the councillors. She informed the CPG. At that point... In what way did she show the legal advice? No, but I don't. Who was saying the legal advice? I don't believe that, like any, uh, like an attorney general to the Taoiseach and the ministers, there is no obligation on her to show that legal advice. Then the legal advice given, if she decides to share that legal advice with the with the members or with the CPG, yeah. it's therefore based on trust. It is under no obligation to actually distribute that legal advice what? among members. Are you serious? You, That's you, my understanding. You, you, no, you, you mean you just do what you're told? You no. just trust the as chief executive? If, you don't ask it no. to be explained to you? No, you go away knows. like little good boys and girls in a classroom and do what the chief executive of the local authority tells you to no, do Michael. because she said so? No, Michael, we have to have regard for the legal advice given. That doesn't mean that we but don't... But you don't know the legal no, advice. No, that doesn't mean we don't question the legal advice. We don't query well, what, what the legal advice says. Yeah. However, if we it? have if we have doubts over the legal advice, we're perfectly entitled to seek our own legal Did advice. You, well, yes, you, you can do that. You can get the council to do that. The council on your... You can instruct the council to do that. But did you question the legal advice? No, I didn't. Okay. So, would you like to know why the motion was pulled? I believe that the motion was pulled in insofar as I think the matter regarding the motion was dealt with and therefore once I was happy Not the point. Would that you it like, was back, so, so you back don't, on the agenda okay, and okay. was dealt with. Okay, so you don't want to know why it was pulled. Like, I mean, either you do want to know why or you don't want to know why. I am satisfied that during the course of the CPG that the matter was discussed and had there been any serious issues that the Cahirlach at the time would have brought that information back to Even the Even though a solicitor said you should you should at least refer this to the Cahirlach? Well, Michael, the way I see it is at the moment as the current Cahirlach, if there's an issue that I believe is of importance to the members and it's discussed at CPG, mm. I would bring that matter immediately to the notice and to the attention of the members. Okay, so, so and that but is uh, my position but that's now. A, that's a very long-winded way of saying you don't want to know no, what the legal advice was. It's not. It's not that case. That's not the case, Michael. The case is that at the time the discussions within CPG, the people privy to that information. We're in a position to Hold perhaps a come There's back elections. To us. There's elections coming up. Yes. Um, uh, uh, and when people go to vote, they will be voting for people who can represent them on the council. Uh, and by that, that means that if, let's say, a group of victims of child sexual abuse, this is little children who were raped, tortured, abused, a fella in a dungeon, a child in a dungeon with a fella with a leather tongue on him, whipping him. That's what we're talking about, right? Uh, that those people can go to the people who have been elected and ask them to bring a motion to the council. Uh, and in this case, that motion was disallowed. That's what this is about. Now, people who suffered 
at the hands of Christian brothers, a religious order, and it is probably no coincidence that it was a religious order. People who suffered at the hands of a religious order want to know what the motivation for pulling that was. Was there something to do with religious beliefs, not wanting to upset a religious order? Did the religious order have some influence on it? They are all now legitimate questions because the council has pulled the shutters down with the assistance of the Cahirlock and the elected members who are supporting her. Do you accept that? Just on that very issue, I myself met with the uh, with the victims yes. in Drogheda. I was one of the counsellors that, that went out. So I wouldn't like anybody to think that I do not take to heart the issues mm. and the problems and the trauma that mm. uh, the victims have yeah. have been submitted to over years and over decades. Um, I think you're absolutely right. You mentioned the local elections are coming in very few months, yeah. uh, about five or six months now. Um, and it is right that the county councillors that are seeking re-election or the new candidates will f- uh, put themselves in a position and convince um, the constituents of County Louth mm. that we are in a position to represent them. You know, issues... But, but sorry, Michael. Just issues, you know... There are a vast array of issues on the table that county councillors on a day-to-day, week-by-week, seven days a week, not three or five, seven days a Mm. week, while holding down, you know, other positions at the same time, that they give their heart and soul to dealing with matters Mm. with... Uh, for the people and in collaboration with the county council, with the executive and their officials. One issue is not necessarily more important than another, but the issues are vast. Mm. And therefore, we're always trying to do our best by the people of County Louth. So I think, you know, it's honing in sometimes. And I can understand that, you know, people might be very upset, but we do try to inform ourselves. We do try to do the best by the people of County Louth. Uh, and is it not reasonable though, Paula, really? I mean, is it not reasonable to ask why that motion was pulled? What was the motivation? We're told, it, no, no, just to finish the question, we're told the motivation was legal advice. So is it, is it not the grown-up thing to say, well, show me the legal advice? You talked about trust. The chief executive could show you the legal advice. You come, as the career look, you come back to the elected members and say, I'm satisfied, I've seen it. Uh, it says this, that and the other. Uh, and then people move on. You know, Michael, you're, you know, you're absolutely right to a certain extent. You know, we, the, the whole issue in regards to this and others has been extensively questioned in the council in the chamber for the last number of months. Questions have been asked, questions, answers have been given. Um, at a certain point, and indeed in the chamber on Monday, one of the councillors did indeed say that while there isn't any obligation, legal obligation to actually physically show us that information, that perhaps going forward, the the proper or a better practice rather mm. would be to show that advice to the Cahirlock and based on the trust that the members would mm. have for the sitting Cahirlock, whether it's me or whoever yeah. it is in you the get, future. You get to a point then where the councillors can make a decision to allow or disallow. But the chief executive has not got the authority to do that. The chief executive breached the law in unilaterally disallowing the motion. That would appear to be the case. We've put that to the council many occasions. They have not responded uh, and they didn't address it on mon- at Monday's meeting. Michael, I'll go back to uh, what I said initially. Could things have been done better? Quite possibly. 
What do we need to do? We need to learn from this and we need to understand how in the future how that we, we can d- we will learn by doing. We learn by but questioning, we which any, we always do. But we and, haven't had any explanation. But at the same time, we will we will move forward on this. We will no learn ex- from it. But you, you can't explain it to us. I can't explain it to the listeners. The chief executive won't explain it to you. She won't explain it to me. She won't explain it to the listeners. In other words, when I say the listeners, that's the people who she is employed to serve. She's a public servant. But this is... Uh, authoritarian county I think I I don't accept that I think it, if you look at uh, the way the council has functioned with the councillors and the, the executive and its officials over the years I think you look at many 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 great things that are being done in the county at the moment uh, previously earlier this morning you were talking to the minister about uh, the Leo yeah, yeah. I think you know there's so many positive things we have the northern cross route you know, well underway. Mm. We have the Westgate vision. The councillors, the councillors of County Loud, the executive and their officials. Who have disregard. But they work very, very hard on behalf of the people of County Loud. Within within the legislation that governs this land, like the Freedom of Information Act, like the Local Government Act? Michael, I believe... Are they above the law? No, absolutely no. So why are the councillors not asking? councillors are always asking questions they're always challenging and there's always robust debate and they're always working very Mm. very hard to make sure that uh, processes and good practices are maintained and that they continue to represent the people as best as they possibly can. Okay. Do you believe this is the end of the matter? I hope that as I said before one issue doesn't necessarily take precedence over another issue I really hope that all the councillors can continue to work really hard on behalf of their constituents. I hope that because we all need to cooperate and collaborate and I just hope that we can keep moving forward. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank, Thank you, you indeed for much. coming into us uh, this morning. Fine Gael, Councillor Paula Butterley is uh, the Cahirlic of Louth County Council. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. There really has been a a lot of uh, reaction to our last interview and I'll uh, go to Damien's uh, comment uh, first. Uh, Damien uh, has been in touch uh, to say that there's been a total disregard for legislation by the CEO and citizens have suffered because of uh, that delay and the chairperson believes we should all move on. It could have been any citizen on any issue. Her constituents have been affected and they have contacted her. Uh, And Damien uh, goes on to say, how do we even know there is legal advice? Uh, Because uh, he's at a stage now where he doubts that there is legal advice because he can't imagine there being legal advice which would advise the CEO to disregard legislation. Damien O'Farrell, as you know, represents uh, the victims of child sexual abuse who had wanted that motion on the council agenda but was disallowed uh, by the chief executive. Uh, We'd um, uh, another text uh, about uh, this issue um, from somebody who says uh, they're in full solidarity 
or in fullest solidarity with the Christian Brother survivors. Uh, the Dromore Group has been following uh, the Garvey story for many months, keen to see truth and justice for those sexually exploited as children by the Catholic Church. The Garvey rescind was only ever a symbolic gesture by Louth County Council with the Christian Brothers survivors and their advocates. The Dromore Group was counting on Louth County Council to finally recognise the abhorrent human rights abuse of children through open dialogue, transparent decision making and concrete steps to ensure that those abused as children will be safeguarded against further abuse. That has not happened. What we are now witnessing in County Loud is what started out as a crisis for the Christian Brother Order is evolved into a crisis for local democracy with the withholding of critical information by an administration from councillors and a failure of those elected representatives to hold that administration to account. How low must the bar go for the good people of County Loud to finally say stop and challenge the poor governance maladministration and deficient leadership in their county. The people of Drogheda and Louth deserve much more, much better. Thanks uh, once again to Tony for that uh, message uh, from the Dromore Group. As I say, a lot of people uh, in uh, touch with us about uh, this uh, particular issue. Uh, Annette uh, in touch saying she was watching Ardell O'Hanlon's Presenting, watching Ardell O'Hanlon presenting a program on TV on Monday night called The Last Priest in Ireland, and he visited Clonliffe College across from Crow Park, a beautiful college that once housed hundreds of priests, now lying totally empty. Why can't places like that be used to accommodate refugees? And I'm sure that there's many more places like that. Uh, and uh, she said uh, that she was listening to the uh, interview with uh, the Cahirlach Paul of Butterley with uh, great interest and uh, that it sent out a significant message to the people of County Louth. Going to come back to some more of these comments because even as I speak, they're coming in, they're flooding in, in fact. Uh, and as I say, we'll come back to your comments after this break. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Mick and Drahada says you get the government you vote for, you also get the councillors that you vote for and that you should vote for councillors who will represent people, not councillors who go into a pact, a pact with each other, but also a pact with the CEO, the executives and the officials. They rub their shoulder, and then the chief executive prioritises their issues. That's her rubbing their shoulder. Irish crap. But that's what we voted for. Next time, maybe we'll vote for real public representatives. Somebody else says, Michael, it is a waste of time asking councillors to condemn the attitude of the chief executive. For some reason or other, they seem to be afraid to discommode her. I wasn't asking anybody to condemn anybody, but I was asking if uh, councillors were going to ask Uh, what the legal advice was or or were they just going to do what they were told to do uh, without it being explained, without having uh, without the chief executive having respect for the councillors to show them what it is to trust them. Uh, Tom uh, thanks uh, for your message he says it sounds like the circle 
they're they're circling the wagons around to Joan. They all know they messed up, and with the local elections coming up, uh, they're hoping to just wait out the storm. Let's hope the people don't forget what these fools did. Uh, and he names uh, a number of people, uh, but uh, Tom, if you don't mind, uh, I'm just going to uh, read your comment uh, that, uh, but he, he says uh, that the whole thing is a puppet show. Thank you very much indeed, Tom. People are uh, certainly very um, interested in this. I mean, that has to be uh, the conclusion that I'm uh, taking here now this morning because of uh, the amount of comments coming to us. Jackie Taft, thank you for your text. She says, shame on our local representatives of Louds County Council. We need accountability and to say that we need to move on is disgraceful. The Cahirlock, the chairperson of Louth County Council, Councillor Paula Butterley's attempt to change the narrative of what this is really about, which is the victims and survivors of child sexual abuse, was shocking. We need new local representatives now, says Jackie Taff. Uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says uh, the interview with uh, the chairperson of Louth County Council was a car crash. She clearly isn't interested in holding the chief executive to account. Oh, my God, says this listener. This is Kate and Dundalk. No wonder uh, the the CEO can do whatever she wants. Another text uh, from Liam who says, I just listened to your interview with uh, Cahirlock of Loud County Council. It was an embarrassment listening to the responses you were given. How can she defend the CEO or Loud County Council after all that has come out? I noticed that she said all councillors are working hard on behalf of uh, their constituents and I'm sure most are. I would ask with respect, bearing that in mind, that she took a look around her own area and see the state of the roads. Thank you indeed, uh, Liam, for that. Uh, another text uh, that uh, comes to us from John, who says, I'm ashamed to be a proud Louth citizen after listening to the chair of Louth County Council, really having no idea as to what's going on and how people were treated by the council. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, another text uh, from somebody who says Joan Martin should have got the boot years ago. I'm not sure why that person thinks that's the case or if they think that's the case now. Uh, there certainly are uh, significant questions that have been asked of uh, the council that the council has ignored in terms of responding to this programme. Um, I told you the other day, if you were listening, we wrote to the council because we're very uh, taken aback that Louth County Council uh, or that the Chief Executive Joan Martin has personalised this and says that our reporting uh, is wrong. Uh, we've asked her to tell us exactly what we have reported that was incorrect. We've had no response. We've also asked her those four questions over and over again and it all comes back to what was the motivation for taking off a motion from the councillor agenda that was being put there on behalf of victims of child sexual abuse. Eamon and Dunlear texting us and he says, Good morning, Michael. Just another bluffer in that county council. Uh, he says, It's nearly unbelievable how these people get away with what they get away with. Uh, stuck for words uh, today, uh, says Eamon. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Uh, Another text then that comes to us uh, from Peter asking 
why Louth County Council will not make itself available to the radio station and explain to the people who employ them what it is they are doing and if they are not in breach of two pieces of legislation, if they are not disregarding legal advice, if they are not continuing to be in breach of legislation, why don't they make that clear and explain why the accusations against them are wrong? Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Peter. Uh, One final comment uh, for today, I think, uh, from Paddy Duffy on a completely different issue. Uh, It's to do with Fine Gael. He asks, what's the difference between Fine Gael and uh, the British Conservative Tory party? Their name, he says, both are right wing and do not represent the majority of the population, just the top 10%. Thank you indeed. That's the final word. Maggie Maguire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.